Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. Welcome to episode 20 of the no Atlas way. Podcast. Two, what? Two, zero. Amazing. Two, zero. We made it and we also uh, just passed a thousand, a thousand unique downloads, which Perfect. is pretty good, I think. Especially for a technology podcast and a couple of old blokes just chatting away about it. So that's good. This is it. <laughs> Somebody's listening. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So on this episode of the Atlas podcast, we are talking about Lucid, the car, the car manufacturer, electric vehicle manufacturer. Uh, that's going to lead into a tech spot about edge computing. And then finally, we're joined by our, by our colleague from down under, Armin Farnley. Yeah, the interesting thing with the Lucid thing is the amount of times we've sat there and discussed, oh, we've got to do a Tesla thing. There's always something on Tesla coming up. And mm -hmm. we haven't done that yet, but we're just going to talk about <laughs> Lucid instead. We're going to go for the competitor and not just because the CEO is a Brit. You know, that we're not favoritism or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I love our... Uh, our um, the way we subverted the subject completely and uh, transversed it and gone straight to something else instead. But yeah, that's good. Well, we're, we're talking Tesla sort of biomission. Mm. We're talking about their main, well, what looks like it might be one of their main competitors from what mm. I can see. Um, they're not quite at market yet, um, but the designs look great. And yeah, I think uh, you mentioned they're just about to hit the stock exchange. Uh, for a valuation of $24 billion. Yeah, and that was that was the article really picked, well, you know, caught my eye really, was the fact that, hey, what is this Lucid thing? Because, you know, Lucid Motors, you can, whether you like the name or not, um, it's uh, definitely recognisable. Um, mm -hmm. And then this kind of story developed about this, uh, this um, Welsh guy who'd been involved with um, a lot of the... Uh, e-sports if you like um and had been a part of that kind of um battery revolution in that way so peter rawlinson was is the guy in question and it was quite just fascinating that you come across these characters our motorsports that you've kind of looked at had an interest in and then you see there's this great big big business aspect aspect behind it and as you said a car that's produced not many cars if any um, mm. and now is looking to float on the stock exchange for 24 billion so some things hit the uh hits a prick someone's interest for sure yeah and like you said it's not it's not as though they've come out of nowhere i mean these there is a certain pedigree there i believe is it rawlinson was formula e yeah formula e so you could imagine that's um getting quite a bit of well that's getting a lot of traction as well um and there's other formula e type uh um uh, endeavors on the market um some mm -hmm. rally cars and all this type of thing um so yeah formula e was i don't know if you've watched it but it, it was quite um fascinating really it was um because it adds a few extra dimensions like having a boost button they're allowed to you know to to get 100% or 150% more capacity for a short period of time for those overtaking maneuvers and this type of thing. So it just shows you really that, that with electric um, technology, you've got, you've got more tools to play with 
if you know what I mean, because you can you can really boost that extra power delivering from the batteries, because all mm. battery power themselves almost have you know an infinite amount of power. If you ever do sh short out a car battery, for example, just a basic car battery, it will um, make some big uh, noise. Big noise, yeah. <laughs> so never drop a spanner across a uh, car battery. <laughs> it weld itself to the uh, terminals. Um, so, yeah, or explode the battery. So they can deliver a hell of a lot of power very, very instantly. Um, but it takes longer to charge them up, obviously, we talked about mm. before. So... You know, so the ratings of the power delivery systems and all those types of things can be played with very effectively in these um, in these sport sporting arenas, really. Where actually a conventional engine, you know, you're really trying to squeeze everything out of it by tweaking this, tweaking that. Where really, we already know, you just stick a big motor and a big battery, and you will get a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I worked briefly covering uh, some of the MotoGP stuff, and that's the bikes. And I know as, as I was leaving that area, Moto, I think they called it Moto E, was starting up. And I, I read some interviews from old test drivers, test riders, who were used to these in, insane bikes that are, mm. you know, even faster than the incredibly fast ones you can buy on market, who were just blown away by how quick and how fast these bikes could be and how... Yeah, I think it's the acceleration which is yeah. the thing which blows people away because it's almost unlimited torque, basically, yes, isn't it? It's exactly. direct, direct power to wheels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The torque is the thing that gets you because in a car we all mainly focus on brake horsepower or, or the equivalent. Um, but yeah, torque is the is the because that's all to do with um, isn't it the the RPM of the engine and. Uh, getting the efficiency, you need to be getting uh, getting at your peak power curves with mm. conventional engines, but with uh, electric, there's, there's, you haven't got the same dynamics. You're not trying to control the airflow and the fuel flow, and you're not trying to, you know, get all the timing of the engine right. You're, you're really just going stick some power in that. Um, and when I've done it, I mean, I did a, I did a project for once for for three M on their winding machines, and they had a lot of these um, DC motor controlled uh, mm. for for their great big winding machines on on abrasive or sandpaper lines, but they're not sandpaper. Far more technical <laughs> than that. And yeah, these motors and the control and what you could do with them, which is phenomenal, is great fun to be able to play with these very powerful motors but with really precise control elements to them as well um and you know that's kind of where my background if you like on on motor control is is on a on a probably about a 400 meter winding machine <laughs> with yeah. about 40 40 great big dc motors being being tuned and controlled um and the interesting thing with that is that the paper acts, acts like a piece of steel that's running through the whole system. Mm. And you've got to tune every single um, motor to work seamlessly with each other and within itself. Um, otherwise, if one is uh, doing a bit of naughty, then the others um, all respond to it type of thing. Huh. But obviously, with the cars, you can basically have a, a motor on each wheel. Yeah, um, you know, and therefore the amount of control you get on each wheel, even with the kind of four-wheel drive stuff, which is really where they're heading with the um, uh, rally car, the electric mm. rally cars, is uh, 
fascinating stuff. But anyway, yeah, the, I guess the big news with this, though, is, is just the amount of investment going in. It's um, huge, yeah. To this, you know. And I know I'm just reading the quote here from Rawlinson himself saying they are the, the big dichotomy for them is they need to get millions of these cars into production. And how do you get that? How do you ramp up that production? Because obviously, I mean, not just for these guys, Lucid, but the the thirst for electric vehicles is through the roof now. Not only because people, I think, are keen on the technology, but also because there's lots of countries now. I know the um, Scandinavian countries are phasing out petrol cars. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they won't be any new, pet, what is it, I think 2025 for certain countries, no new production of petrol cars. Yeah. And we're going to have the as slightly diver, uh, diverting from the subject. We're going to have the same with um, domestic boilers as well. You know, we all accept a, in the UK, especially a gas boiler or your combination boiler, but they're going to be phased out as well. So, what's the new technology? I might do something on that because I saw an interesting article on microwave boilers, which I thought. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. So maybe that could be next week. We'll have a look at microwave boilers. But yeah, yeah was... looking at the volumes here, you know, they're talking. Yeah, it's not. It's this, it's this supply and demand problem, really, isn't it? This is ninety thousand units or whatever it is of that they want to get to, and some of this is I really looking at that ratio of if you can get enough electric cars out there, the impact on the zero carbon. It's a real zero carbon um, mandate that is pushing those numbers from his point of view anyway mm. to reach zero carbon in the automotive industry we need to produce this many cars it's a numbers game for them yeah how do they get to that number is the big problem yeah and which obviously is a different dimension isn't it so thinking about oh we need to compete no this is just a numbers game <laughs> yeah and i think the world is so set up to produce traditional vehicles but I guess the infrastructure just isn't there to create all of these very specialized pieces of equipment that go into an electric car. Well, it's about that performance and range, isn't it? And that's why Tesla have done so well, is because mm. they outcompete the traditional car manufacturers on both performance and range. Um, and so, you know, he's looking at this Lucid Air, uh, which is going to start production in the second half of this year. Its range is 519 miles. Mm. that's ridiculous um, yeah. acceleration 0 to 60 2.5 seconds that's pretty good <laughs> with zero uh, you know exhaust emissions it's just on a different scale mm. um you know so that would that would be one of the first cars that actually outperforms a tesla and that's why yeah. you know elon musk and tesla have done so well is what they engineered back in whatever 2012 2013 hasn't been surpassed yet mm. so they've been uh, lacking competition up yeah, to this point for sure yeah exactly exactly and uh, obviously um with rawlinson's background um he's definitely got the uh pedigree there to understand what's required to be done mm. um and like i said he's got a very strong clear business plan and ambition so uh we will see we will see indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this sort of, in a, in a way, leads us on to our tech spot. 
because uh, we're going to talk about edge computing, but I think you wanted to specifically focus on how um, things like automated cars could become edge units in themselves. So I don't know if you want to give a, a rough outline that's slightly better than the one I just did there. <laughs> um, well, edge computing or hybrid computing is, um, is, is a bit of a buzzword around at the moment. I mean, it's been about, obviously, for a while, um, and there's been different formats of that. And why, let's cut to the chase, why that means about with with um, uh, cars is because of the self-driving element or whatever it is. So you need an autonomous car. Mm. An autonomous car is is an edge compute device, ultimately. Um, it doesn't make quite sense when you're talking about it in the, the forms of cars, but it's basically that autonomous computing capability that can talk to maybe a centralized area, which would generally be a cloud compute type of capability, where it would get its updates from, um, where it would be monitored from, um, mm. and, you know, you can start to do all your algorithms and data analytics upon. But also in the self-drive world, you've got to be able to communicate with other cars on the road mm. as well. And that's where more the autonomy stuff goes in. It's got to be able to make decisions for itself without going back to the central brain, um, which is that kind of cloud hybrid approach. It's got to go, right, okay, get get all my models, get all of my um, parameters, let me receive them into the my edge, if you like, the edge of the cloud, and let me be able to act autonomously or learn. And that's mm. where the kind of machine learning aspect comes into it. So I think cars, are, as with many technologies, the automotive industry has really led the way um, for for since you know how <laughs> for since Ford basically, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and with PLC control units, they were one of the first people involved with them and things like that. So, yeah, automotive has always been pushing the boundaries of these type of thing, and some of the stuff we're doing it with with the five G project as well in the manufacturing space. Five G is going to be a part of that communication for autonomous cars. You would have thought in the future as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a whole load of stuff there. But let's if we just take a step back, because um, like I said, edge computing itself has probably been talked about in different forms. And, you know, we're clumsily once again falling over a terminology. Does edge make sense in the context of an autonomous car? Probably not. Mm. But we're still struggling really with what cloud really means. Mm -hmm. um, the trouble is, and this is very typical of when we talk about edge compute it says already or there's there's been various different forms of phrases that people have tried to try to push to 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 if you like corner the market in in the terminology wars um and, and you know you can just visit cisco's website and it talks about fog computing multi-access edge computing micro data centers my favorite, cloudlets. Cloudlets. <laughs> Emergency response units. These are all different types, as quoted by Cisco, of different edge computing. Right. It is confusing, for yeah. sure, certainly from a layman's perspective. <laughs> um, I guess uh, just to take another step back, in case anybody is unaware of edge computing, because I don't know if we've discussed it directly before, but the concept itself is rather than talking directly to the cloud, 
you talk to an edge unit. That's why it's called edge, because it's on the edge of the cloud, which is lower latency, closer to whatever the computing is, that then also handles some of the computations that then passes it to the cloud. It's a way of eliminating latency, essentially. Yeah, so let's have a look at the use cases for it then, because you mentioned a few of those, but I, I want to try challenge some of them. Um, Good. Uh, because, you know, and that's why I mentioned about the car, because that's a real use case. If you want an autonomous self-drive car, that's a that's a proper use case there. Mm. Um, when we start to talk about edge computer, for example, for low latency, well, why do we need low latency? That's because we, in our mind, think of, well, if I'm talking from a device to a cloud, we're thinking there might be 100 milliseconds or, or second um delays in the message getting to the cloud, the cloud processing and the message being sent back to the edge. Mm. Therefore, we perceive that level of latency is going to cause us a problem. But if you look at what 5G is promising, 5G is promising low latency of 5 milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, whether that's achievable. I know, I know it is achievable, but is it achievable with the bandwidth required to be able to do what we need to do? Um, then there is a debate whether latency is really an issue. Um, mm. And what I mean is that, well, we know information pretty much travels at the speed of light. Therefore, especially because if literally in a fiber network, um, therefore, is the distance from the edge to the cloud as big an issue in the future? Or is it an issue today because of the communication protocols we're using? Yeah, so long as you can guarantee a fiber connection between the computer you're talking about and the cloud, you're right, it's the speed of light, so long as you can maintain that. I guess it's one of the issues whether it's um, you can guarantee that speed throughout the process? or Well, that's the bandwidth. So bandwidth comes with latency. So if you're trying to send over lots of information like um, AR, VR, or what an autonomous vehicle might require, and that's a bit of a difference. So so there are use cases when there's going to be heavy requirement of data transfer, therefore reducing the bandwidth potentially, that edge compute would be required. Um, and that is going to be, you know, that's where we have to consider edge compute a bit like our brain. It's doing a lot of processing. Actually, most of the processing is based on a model we have built up over and learned over our our lifetime um, and very little is about us seeing and hearing things it's mm -hmm. a higher proportion of it is us applying it to our model yeah um, and therefore yeah you low latency is a good use case as long as we're talking about those two dimensions the bandwidth or the effect on the bandwidth or uh, and the like the 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 one I would say is the exception to that, which is with tra financial trading platforms. Mm. And they have spent a fortune moving their um, algorithms closer to the exchange so they can win the millisecond battle. Um, yeah. Uh, and there are some, you know, extreme cases where it's not just about the amount of data. If you're trading and you can trade two milliseconds quicker than your competitor, they will move the whole, you know, the whole data center 
as close as they can get to where, where if they can out trade another person yeah so, i have read i have read articles on that we'll find one to to link in the episode description and it is it's crazy because obviously like it's one of those weird things with trading where you know that quarter of a millisecond mm. means the difference of a quarter of a quarter of a penny but then multiplied over obviously millions of transactions that's big money yeah exactly exactly so like i said that's a bit of a a bit of a out there um um use case but yeah so low latency fine but we do have to think think about as the communication protocols come in around the 5g whether everything has to be applied to that low latency mm -hmm. um local data processing i think is more relevant because not you don't want to have you want stuff to process away from the cloud potentially but once again we've got the latency discussion but that's because there's there's some cost implications with the cloud um you want to filter data out that you don't want you don't want to capture all bad data so we we use a lot of this type of local data processing um on the cases we've got with the you know, 10 millisecond world data analyzing the world data at the edge and applying those rules to that information and some of that might just be really oh if i'm not processing don't capture it 10 milliseconds capture every minute or whatever it is um so how you manage the frequency uh, of that is one of those things that you can control with edge compute and we mustn't um, underestimate the cost of implication of not storing the data in the cloud that you don't need to store um especially when we talk about the sampling rates because if you talk about true analog well true analog is basically an infinite isn't it so um, um we are always digitizing and therefore it's always a level of sampling that we're doing and even if you're sampling at one millisecond, what about one nanosecond? What about one picosecond? You know, it, you're never going to get um, down to the smallest incremental level and what's the value of that. So local processing definitely helps with those kind of things. Mm. And also, I, I presume, coming back to the topic of the episode, you want local processing in something like an autonomous vehicle to happen because it's going to be driving in the real world. Yeah. So you want that information that it's taking in and processing to happen at, or a certain chunk of it to happen at the local level because it has to react based yeah. on what's happening around it. And there's those, 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 those AI models or machine learning models that we talked about. Um, if, if you can get a perfect model of a lucid car and it knows how it would perform and it, and it can sense its environment, um, and there's some great videos on YouTube where you can start to see these autonomous vehicles like mapping out in a visual way all the things in front of them and classifying them in mm. real time. That kind of stuff, once again, that's where we talk about that local processing um, of that information. Uh, but yeah, a lot of it today is more around how do you filter out the data you don't want to archive, basically, and, and utilize the data through anal uh, algorithms at the edge um so yeah lots of different uh different use cases um for them um and and you know it's making sure that the systems are architected in a in a way so one of the key problems if you like with any edge type devices 
how do you monitor, how do you update, how do you control the edge, and how do you secure the edge? You know, because when it's in the cloud, it's all a bit easier. But as soon as you get out into the edge, you've lost a little bit of control of that kind of thing. So mm. what we found with this kind of edge computing type of approach is it's great to have the edge compute, but it's all around how do you maintain and monitor and update those edge compute devices? Because just having an edge compute device and thinking you can fit and forget it, yeah, it's not worth worrying, not even going down that line. So we spend a lot of time looking at those um, approaches, linking edge computing to IoT in the cloud. Mm. So you can have that alignment between the uh, way that the edge will talk to the cloud via IoT protocols like MQTT, et cetera, et cetera, in two way, you know, information to the cloud, information from the cloud, how you can deliver those updates to the um, models that you're storing at the edge. Um, so not just the infrastructure that you're going to run at the edge, but also the parameters, the models, et cetera, like that, all have to be managed or have to be versioned or has to be trace traceable um otherwise you will lose complete configuration management really really quickly um, and once again the cloud itself has many tools that facilitate the management of that um, um uh, of the edge hmm. so um and there's lots of great stuff out there to uh, control it um you know, things like Terraform and things like this and all kinds of things that you can use in combination of the application you got in the cloud, how you deliver that information and how do you know when things have been updated in a secure manner. Fascinating stuff. I think we've got a few articles on the website which we'll link into this episode as well if anyone wants to give them a read. Um, I think they've got my name on, but they were mainly written by you. So that's good. <laughs> I'll take all of the credit. <laughs> Sometimes it's the other way around, though, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Okay. Uh, that is fascinating stuff. Some good use cases, as you said. Uh, I think it's time we had a chat with our friend Armin. Um, and yeah, see what he has to say. Hi there, this is just a quick insert to say we had a long and lovely chat with Armin, but unfortunately the audio quality wasn't great. So I've gone through and I've edited it down and tweaked it as much as I can. But yeah, just a, a forewarning that the, the audio is not great. We look forward to having him back though. So for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Armin Farnley. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, thank you for joining us, Armin. No problem. Thanks uh, for having me. is one of our. Thank you. Uh, Armin is one of our colleagues from from down under. So this is our first Antipodean interview. Uh, if you'd like to give us a bit of background, how you arrived at ATS, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I, I um, had been running my own business, a family business, um, since about 1990, um, and that had really two two uh, arms. One was a uh, distribution business focused around rocket automation products, and actually the the uh, thing that started the business. But um, we happened to start the business at the same time that we entered uh, a pretty serious recession. So it changed the nature of what we had to do in a lot of customers as they started to de-engineer their their operations. And so it didn't take long before we realised we had to have an engineering 
systems integration business. So um, we within about eighteen months we established an engineering activity out of that business, and then that ended up being spun off with a separate business called Integrated Automation. Um, and about uh, five and a half years ago, um, ATS acquired that business, and uh, I guess I came along with it as part of the, the acquisition. And you were part of the package. Part of ATS, yes. yes. Yeah, you haven't escaped yet. Um, uh. I, haven't, I haven't escaped yet. Yeah, it was an interesting interesting time. We, we, we ended up with um, a fairly torrid uh, um, end to the, the relationship with Rockwell, so um, we looked really focused on what we were doing with the engineering activity. So what what got you into the controls industry in the first place, Armand? What was it? What led you in that direction? Oh, um, purely purely coincidence, I think, Martin. Um, I started out my career working in a, an industrial applied research team at Deakin University. It was um, a slightly novel idea for the Deakin University and a little bit novel in Australian universities was to have a a group of people who were pulled in from various faculties, so psychologists, educators, uh, computer scientists, engineers, and so on. Um, and we established a group called the Centre for Research on Intelligent Systems at the university. And uh, one of the academics from that group um, chose to leave to spin off a, uh, an activity um, and... Uh, I, I went went with him, and then we ended up um, being introduced into the industrial automation business through that activity. The, the group was focused very much on uh, applications of uh, artificial intelligence, and so we were looking at how how you can apply artificial intelligence principles to a whole range of applications. And one of the key ones was uh, was a focus on healthcare. Looked at um, applying artificial intelligence systems to Characterise people's um, behaviour as a means of uh, diagnosing dementia, and uh, and in order to assist people in staying in their own home for much much longer. So that was a really interesting sort of project. And, yeah. and that, do you miss that kind of research element to what you're involved with there? Yeah, I, I, well, it was certainly novel. Um, we we did other things like um, we did another one, which is machine vision. Looking at rice grain inspection, and uh, and that's that's sort of what got me into the into the industrial automation world. Is we were doing applications of machine vision. We were literally building our own our own cameras and, and building um, robotic equipment from scratch, building our own servo servo controllers and so on. None of this stuff was really available in the market back then, and uh, so it was really hard going. And uh, uh, but that that led me to this uh, startup, which was around machine vision and. Um, um, unfortunately, the, the academic who was involved um, chose to leave quite early in the life of the startup, and uh, so we kind of had to um, do a whole lot of you know mitigating measures, some of which would involve the Supreme Court. And um, so, <laughs> so, um, and I found myself doing all sorts of things I had never expected to be doing, and that's when I learned bookkeeping and accounting. Um, I also learned a lot about the law, and. Um, uh, but um, and and that's where my you know, the active sales career started because we got out looking to sell applications for machine vision, um, and in that process we we came across what Rockwell Automation was doing, and they had recently acquired a company from France called Servo Vision, and they were keen to have some people who 
knew what they're doing in the machine vision space. And so they asked me to come on board for a couple of years um, to to help launch their machine vision uh, product in Australia. So that's that was really my introduction to the serious industry. And and as that sort of tapered off, um, they invited me to become involved as a systems integrator and, and we actually set up a distribution business um, with them, with their support. And uh, it helped to build their business um, as one one of about 25 distributors in Australia um, from, from about $10 million a year to about $140 million a year over the life of their involvement with them. So it was an interesting journey. Um, along that journey, we got involved with, um, particularly involved with the dairy process and, uh, and dairy process became the core of our organisation business here in Australia. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what's what kind of industries are really um, the key focus in a, in in your part of the world? What, you, you mentioned about dairy and mining yeah. there a little bit, but what what, what is it? Is, is there a specific uh, industry in the Victoria area? Uh, well, Victoria um, has uh, a long history of manufacturing um, uh, that, that goes back to the. 1860s actually, and uh, my home city of Geelong was, was, if you like, the Manchester of Australia. It, was the, it had many, many woolen mills and um, a lot of equipment you know, made in the UK, shipped out to Australia, made in Germany as well, and uh, shipped out here. And uh, it, was the, it was the place where our, very, our, our emerging wool industry in Australia um, uh, shipped its wool to, and then, and then was all you know, combed and scoured and whatever to um, to produce uh, garment wool and then export it back to to Europe. Um, so so Victoria has been very much a, um, a manufacturing state traditionally, and and as um, the post war economy after the Second World War had to be developed here, there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of build up on manufacturing and infrastructure around that. So we saw aluminium smelters built, we saw you know, growth in the chemical industry, petroleum refineries and a whole, whole range of industry capacity. The ATS business um, prior to the acquisition of, of my business uh, um, was more positioned in automotive and uh, and that was clearly a challenge because the automotive industry was winding down and all the activity of ATS was automotive related. Um, so certainly the business has had to go through through a transition uh, in the last four or five years. And where where does um, uh, Australia now sit in the in the region from you know APAC because there's a obviously a, a growing um, set of relationships within that region and things. How does how does Australia sit in that? Australia's engagement with uh, with Asian business. Um, Dates probably back to the mid 1970s, and and in, and in fact, it's you know, sort of ironic that we're speaking to someone British because part, partly part of the, the catalyst for that uh, realignment was the UK going into the European common market. Uh, and <clears throat> what most people don't don't appreciate is that what that meant is that we we lost our single biggest customer, and uh, we had to go find other customers, and uh, um, so. It, Resulted in a big transition, um, particularly in Victoria, because a lot of our exports to the UK were, were food products. Um, but, but prior to that, as I said, there's been 10 years out of manufacturing history of exporting to the UK. Um, so that, that, 
the start, start of the pivot towards Asia, um, we we engaged with China almost before any other Western nation did. So China, the cultivation of China as a market started way back then, um, and it and it has been growing and growing and growing, especially around mining exports, um, but services as well. We, um, our education uh, exports are enormous in the region. Um, there's a very very large number of people in in Southeast Asia, India, and uh, in China, who have Australian degrees that have been done in either partly here or fully off campus. Fascinating. Uh, I'm conscious of the time because it's uh, it's your afternoon there, and you're about to head off for the end of the day, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> we, we, we always assume you're off I, to the beach. I, 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 it's a bit cool. It's a nice day, but it's a bit cool to go on the beach. Um, uh, yeah thanks for uh, thanks for chatting with us and giving us a bit of insight into your uh, your local region and what you've been up to in the past um, yeah, no, it's always good to get a different perspective that's for sure for sure thank you Mark. thank you yeah thank you so much for joining us Armin. we'll uh, we'll speak again soon thanks Simon. thank So that's it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alex. I love to talk about edge computing, so um, I was quite happy to join this in with the old the motor story, the <laughs> motor story. story. Yeah, it's great, great. Yeah. As with all of the topics, I think there's many bits in it we could come back and do a deep dive on, and I'm sure we will. Sure, yeah. Um, the quote for this week uh, is from Theodore Hook, who has my favourite job title of uh, antiquity, which is English Man of Letters. So he just wrote some nice stuff. That's um, what you always hope to be, isn't it, Alex? That's I've got my fingers crossed, you know. So at some point there'll be a Wikipedia page, Alex Matheson, Man of Letters. <laughs> um, but, yeah, his quote was, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. So there we go. That's kind of what we're trying to do. We well, we are, yeah, in our own little way. We're trying to uh, uh, create the future. That is, I mean, we could extend that, but maybe future. There isn't a future. Maybe we're all living in the past, present, and future at the same time. But perhaps mm. maybe that's uh, a topic for a pint rather than a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> free will, Alex. Free will. <laughs> well, we'll get there. All right. Thanks, Martin. I will see you next week. Cheers, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.